Well, we heard Jesus give a little preview about uh, the end of the world this morning. Ever wonder how it might play out? I have a preview of the preview, just to let you think about it. Take a look. When worlds collide, written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double-checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves, fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. Could happen. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I read this week that the city of Jerusalem may be one of the oldest cities in the whole world. Its history goes back through several different versions of way before it became the spiritual and physical capital of the Israelites. The first settlement there may actually go back as far as 3500 BC. Its strategic location often brought it trouble. According to one source, the city has been attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times, besieged 23 times, and destroyed twice. King David captured it from the Jebusites in 1000 BC when it became the city of David. His son Solomon would build the first temple there. That temple would be destroyed by the Babylonians in about 586 BC. After some 70 years in exile, the displaced Israelites were allowed to return to Jerusalem to, uh, and construction on a new temple was begun along with the rebuilding of the city. In our gospel reading this morning, that temple has been undergoing an expansion and upgrade by King Herod, and it's still kind of a work in progress. Jesus' disciples are in awe of it, as well they should be. The smallest stones weighed two to three tons. Many of them weighed up to 50. The walls towered 400 feet over Jerusalem in one place. Its foundation stones were nearly the size of boxcars. It was grand and it was glorious, and the complex covered a full one-sixth of the, the land area of the ancient city. First century historian Josephus wrote that 
The outward face of the temple wanted for nothing that was likely to surprise either men's eyes or their minds, for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. The renovation work that was begun in 20 BC would continue until it was finally completed in 63 AD. But even with some 30 years to go at the time of our lesson, it would have been hard for you and I to stand there, you know, admiring it in all its glory, in all its beauty, without thinking of it as a permanent tribute to God, a place worthy of his presence. To the first century Jew, it represented God's power and their national identity. The temple was the, the bedrock of their faith in the one true God. And so Jesus' answer to his disciples, ooing and awing at this magnificent house of God, is really nothing less than shocking. As for these things you see, he said, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. Considering the planning and the effort, the time and expense that had gone into this structure, not to mention its holy purpose, if anyone other than Jesus had talked about its demise, they would never have believed them. And the questions start. When's it going to happen? What are the signs going to be? What hope is there for us in the face of such terrible times? And Jesus answers them in a way that will prepare them for uh, whatever end might come, the temples, the worlds, or even their very own. His warnings to them about the city's dire future were shocking and they were unbelievable, but their spiritual world and the secular world were destined to violently collide in the not-too-distant future. One more time, their beautiful city and the temple where God himself had promised to meet them in worship would not survive that collision. There was such an air of permanence to it, the thought of its destruction was a hard thing to accept. People probably said the same thing about the Twin Towers when they changed the New York City skyline. In 1933, a science fiction novel by authors Edwin Balmer and Philip Wiley was published. Titled, When Worlds Collide, it imagined that astronomers discovered a pair of rogue planets hurtling through space directly at the Earth. It would result in what today would be called an extinction-level event. Our planet was going to be destroyed. Even though their information was accurate, they had trouble getting anyone in the government to believe that the world was going to end in just two years. Because time is short, their only hope is to secure private funding to build an atomic rocket that might be able to save at least some of mankind by attempting to land on the smaller of the two planets, which appeared to be habitable. The large one is the planet destroyer, but while the smaller one will pass by days earlier without directly hitting the Earth, its gravitational influence will still cause vast destruction. And it does. There are tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, burning cities, and whatever other horrible things you can imagine. You just saw them. Academy Award for the best special effects, by the way, that year. But there's still just enough time to get the rocket finished and launched before the big one impacts. How it ends, well, leaving you waiting for a sequel. You can watch the 1951 film and uh, see for yourself. And a sequel novel was published called After the Worlds Collide, but sadly a film version was never made, and you're going to have to do the work. The movie won an Academy Award for special effects, like I said, and it was one of the few successes in that genre that, that launched the golden age of science fiction films in the 1950s. But is it really so far-fetched? 
How often do we hear about large asteroids, you know, flying through our corner of space, but then they've never gotten close enough to cause so much as a ripple in the ocean, have they? Let alone a, a tsunami. Not yet. Probably never. That's what Jesus' disciples thought as they walked through the city near the end of our Lord's ministry with their heads on a swivel. Jerusalem was too beautiful. Its temple was too solid, too magnificent to ever be destroyed. It was a tribute to man's engineering uh, ingenuity and God's majesty. And that's when Jesus burst their bubble, when he brings them back down to earth by warning them that the coming destruction of, of, of that magnificent house of God is going to happen. He also shares with them that one day nation will rise against nation and that there are going to be earthquakes and famines and pestilence and terrors and persecutions. He lists just about everything but a zombie apocalypse for us to worry about. He's warning them of a time to come when the world would catch fire with wars and upheaval. It's a time so terrifying that people would be crying out, this is it. This must be the end. Now, some of that consuming fire came in A.D. 70, when just about seven years after the temple's uh, final completion. In response to a Jewish rebellion, Rome had dispatched a general named Titus to lay siege to Galilee and the city. Josephus claims that over one million Jews were lost in battle or from its collateral effects. Slavery, murder, disease, uh, and starvation. Another 97,000 were taken captive or scattered across the empire. For those who had fled the countryside to, for the safety of Jerusalem and its massive city walls, they found themselves trapped inside those walls without enough food to eat and no way to get any. At the end of their world and everything they knew was at hand. When the walls were finally breached and 60,000 Roman troops poured in, the city was set ablaze and even the magnificent temple of God was burned and laid to ruin, not one stone left standing upon another. But troubles for God's people haven't stopped. You know, as the new Christian church began to take root and grow in places like uh, Ephesus in Asia Minor or Corinth or Rome, so did the persecution lodge to destroy it. In the first century, Roman emperors had declared themselves to be gods and demanded to be worshipped as such. Something not only the monotheistic Jews, but these new Christians who had appeared uh, refused to do. The roots of the great rebellion that eventually uh, led to the destruction of Jerusalem lay in the Jews' refusal to uh, worship Roman Emperor Caligula as their god. His cry was, let there be one Lord, one King. It's eerily predictive, wasn't it, of what would become the first Christians' claim about Jesus. Caligula's assassination stayed off war against the Jews in Palestine for a time, um, but it would come. But all through history since, faithful people of God have suffered for their beliefs, even today. Beyond the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the centuries leading up to Constantine in around 313, the Holy Roman Emperor who had legalized Christianity and actually became a Christian on his deathbed, the spiritual battle for good versus evil for the souls of mankind continues to be fought. And there's even more destruction in the pipeline waiting to be unleashed until the day Jesus returns to restore all things. Speaking just last week at the G20 Religion Forum in Bali to over 300 religious leaders from across the globe, uh, Iraqi Archbishop Bashar Warda warned that around, after around 1,900 years in the region, Christians in Iraq are finding themselves on the edge of extinction. Thousands of religious minorities in the past decade, he said, have been killed or enslaved or forced to flee their homelands. 
And it's not just our faith that's being threatened in this fallen world uh, we call our, our home for now. It's our lives as well. And not always just because of our faith, just the, the chaos that's reigning in the world these days. You know, people just walking out the door with baskets full of things that, without even paying for them and no consequences. 30 people were wounded and five others killed in, in 20 separate shooting incidents in Chicago just last weekend. A San Diego megachurch elder and, and past, ordained pastor was arrested on suspicion of abuse and murder in the death of her 11-year-old daughter just last week. It makes you want to ask, is this finally the end? Is this the time? How are we to live as followers of Christ? How are we to navigate such a volatile landscape? How are we to live in a world that seems to constantly be on fire? Well, Jesus doesn't leave us hanging this morning. He gives us the answer. For their time of troubles and for ours. A clear, simple approach on how, to, how his followers should face it. And not surprisingly, it doesn't include anything like living in a constant state of fear or building a bunker in your backyard. First, by outlining in broad strokes what will happen, he's telling his people to live with readiness and awareness. You know, denial's a, a pretty common coping mechanism for, for we mortals, isn't it? But denial won't save you. Now, what do you suppose people thought when they first read the headlines or listened to the early news reports about that church elder? Or the hurricanes in Florida or the tornadoes in Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas? Now, they think, well, that's tragic and maybe we can help. That's a good thing. But do you think most of them ever really worried about it happening to them? One of the points Jesus is trying to get across this morning is that even his followers have to realize that tragedy and persecution and evil can happen right here right in our own communities, in our own church families, in our own homes. Here's, he's not calling us to, to live in a state of paranoia or constant fear. He's simply asking us to be honest, to realize and admit that the world is groaning under the weight of sin and despair, and those groans will only get louder until he returns one day to quiet them. If we can do that, then it's likely that we won't have the rug of our own faith pulled out from under us when troubles come to our door. In verse 14, he says, Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer when trouble arrives. Instead, he's saying, Live with your eyes open and your heart at peace, confident that God will give you what you need um, when those things arrive, when that happens. You know, the troubles of a deteriorating world when they come knocking at your door. He's saying that he'll be there for you, that he'll be there with you. Second, Jesus reminds us that our struggle in this broken world can, can be like platform. Uh, listen to what he says in verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. You know, how much better will we be able to navigate the world's catastrophes, our, our own life's catastrophes, if we see them as providing an opportunity to show those without hope, that despite our circumstances, there's always a reason to hope. When worlds collide and troubles come, we have to fall back on our true identity, our new identity in Christ. We have to use those troubles as a platform to show those around us without hope uh, how the hope we have, how a child of God faces and endures, and in the end, ultimately overcomes the floods and flames of a fallen world. He tells his disciples, he promises his followers in, in verses 18 and 19, not a hair of your head will perish. What does that mean? Does it mean that no Christians have ever been crushed when 
earthquakes knocked down buildings or gotten washed away in the floods of the recent Florida hurricanes? Of course not. Disaster doesn't see faith. doesn't discriminate. But faith sees disaster. And it recognizes that as a child of God, number one, we don't face troubles alone. And number two, even death can't overcome a believer. In fact, it's already been overcome by faith in a cross and an empty tomb. Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago to make it so. His crucifixion is an historical truth. But when he was nailed to that cross, all our sins were nailed there right along with him. The blood he shed there washed away all our sins. And with it, the, the punishment those sins should have brought us but didn't. That's a spiritual truth. It's why he'd come. It was why even though he was innocent, he didn't call down legions of angels to, to, to rescue him from the torture and eventual death that he faced. Because he did it for us. He took on our punishment for us in our place so that by faith in him, we might become children of God. New creations, the Bible says, in Christ. God raised him from the grave on Easter morning to assure us that the debt we owed God was paid in full, that the bridge connecting us to God that sin had destroyed was now rebuilt, and that even death can't separate us from God or the everlasting life he has in store for us. And so I guess that begs a question you may never have given much thought to. You know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail, that you already had everything you needed to survive? Seriously, how would you walk through life if you had the assurance, a, a deep abiding assurance, that when it's all said and done, you'll be safe and satisfied? That no matter how insane the world around us gets, in the middle of it all, there's Jesus with his promise, don't worry, I've got this. He's saying the world as you know it is going to collapse and it's going to crumble and it's eventually all going to end, but don't worry, I've got this. It's a great promise. But it's still tough to outrun worry, isn't it? From the time we wake up in the morning to the time we, we toss and turn in bed trying to get to sleep at night, all the daily troubles and worries of life run around in our heads uh, until what we should really be concerned about, getting ourselves and others ready for Jesus' return as judge, doesn't get as much as honorable mention. Even the end of the world gets shoved into a corner by by thoughts about how we're going to pay the rent or the rising cost of our medications or finding job security. And that health and uh, add to that health and wellness issues, family concerns and friends in need, and you get yourself a sleepless night. But when you boil it all down, you'll find that it's really all about just one thing. It all comes down to the right answer to that same question. Can I trust that God is truly in control? And Jesus says, you better believe it. You don't have to worry about what the future holds when you know who holds the future. One way to remember that is by fast-forwarding to the end of the salvation story to see if it needs a sequel, to return to God's promises in his word, the Bible. Let them take you back to the promises of the prophets, to the Christmas story, the, the prophecies fulfilled, to the cross and the empty tomb, to Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, his promise of a place already prepared for us in heaven, You'll see there are no loose ends. Those are real-life stories that have the power to calm your heart and give you space to think about, about who you are by remembering who you really are through the waters of holy baptism. And that no matter what, in the end, you'll survive. Amen.
Now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.